0: Hi, I'm Anna-Claire Harper, and you're listening to the Return a Property and Investment Podcast, sharing insights and information on key topics from real estate technology to sustainability. Feel free to get in touch or follow recent news by connecting on LinkedIn. Anna-Claire Harper. Hi, and welcome to the Return Property and Investment Podcast. I'm Anna, and I'm delighted to be joined by Simon Scott, who is Lead Director, Living Capital Markets UK at JLL, which is the second largest global property advisor in the world. Welcome to the podcast, Simon, and thank you for joining me.
1: Thanks, Anna.
0: So today, I would love to get your take on the future of living capital markets, but focus on what I would call large-scale residential investment, with a particular emphasis on single-family housing. Before we look into the future, though, there's often a lot that we can learn from the recent past. So I guess just reflecting on 2023, I wonder if you could share some of the key insights or lessons that the residential investment sector in particular has learned.
1: I guess to a lesser extent, 23s had um, similarities with the pandemic. And by that, I mean, obviously, an environment that was materially affected from an investment perspective, which put people on edge in terms of making investment decisions to purchase. But fundamentally, what's actually gone on on the ground has been incredibly resilient. So I don't know how many of these sorts of markets we have to go through in order to demonstrate to the investment community I think, in all fairness, we pretty much are there. It's just relative pricing now becomes more of an issue, probably something we come on to a bit later. But the resilience of what residential as an investment asset class has, and particularly in times of the greatest market volatility, I think is unquestionable. Yeah. And I, I think, again, 23 is a, another really key example of that. I mean, you think about some of the predictions that were made about house price falls and crashes and so on as a result of increases to the interest rates that we saw and fundamentally that has not happened so I think that would probably be my biggest takeaway from the joys of last year
0: yeah I completely agree with that and especially in the context of all the kind of turbulence globally there was so much that happened and to remain so resilient what does that actually mean though for the future what does that you know I suppose that lesson, that example of resilience that we've seen, another example of resilience at the residential market, what does that mean in 2024 and beyond?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the key thing is just insulation of value. So insulation of value and the ability to maintain an income stream off the back of the investment that you've made. And if we think about the vast majority of investors and the long-term investors within the built to rent space, single-family housing space, if we're going to focus on that particularly today, it's about a steady state of income that matches liabilities and, and yet retaining the resilience of the assets that you've acquired. So we did a review on a couple of portfolios that were available in the market last year or the year before that failed to sell as a result of the uh, challenges that the and Obics budget brought about and that sort of market insecurity. And putting us somewhere between a 75 and 100 basis point movement into those cap rates... We were still generating a price that was equivalent to much, much keener yields as a result of the tremendous rental growth that we've seen in the sector as as a whole because of the shortage of supply that's coming through and the demand for good quality product. That to me is a pretty defensive asset class. So you're maintaining a higher level of income, reflecting the outward movement in yields and the resilience of the underlying real estate. That I think is the fundamental behind why. Residential investment assets are such a key part. I think as we move into the next phase of sort of confidence, I think returning to the market.
0: Okay, so a big lesson being have a part have this as part of your portfolio. What happened to those portfolios, by the way, that you mentioned?
1: I think they are still available and letting up. So again, a lot of the work that we do should be well aware. A lot of the money is chasing development opportunities because you can't buy the stock because it doesn't exist in the same way as it does. In the U.S. or Germany, where you have well-established residential investment markets, we obviously did going back to the 1960s and obviously rent control put pay to that, and we're now in a position where that market is being rebuilt, but it's relatively small steps. I think the BPF produced regular statistics on the scale of the built-to-rent space, which I don't think yet covers the single-family housing market, but I think in combination, we're seeing a big influx of new supply in the market, but it's few and far between at a different level. Yeah. Absolutely. And at the end of the day, I think also a lot of the developers that are active in the space recognize that potential. If they're well capitalized, take the rent, you know, the demand's there. So that risk is pretty limited. And certainly when I talk to my funding colleagues about appetite from the banks to support developers within the space, they're very keen to get exposure. So actually that takes the pressure off the developer from having to then trade in the market that perhaps they would like to, but at a price they probably don't want to when they can see the fundamentals are strong. And certainly it's you won't need to seek very hard to find a developer who will tell you how difficult it is to get planning and how long it takes. Yeah. So when you've gone through that process and all the challenges around development that clearly exist, why would you give such a prime asset away? You just wouldn't that's an element of, I think, what, what we've been seeing perhaps why those sales yeah, haven't come to a place. Okay.
0: The next question I was going to ask you is around the capital living market and the kind of significant trends and emerging dynamics that are shaping it. But I suppose as part of that, it would be helpful if you could just explain what capital living is and how it relates to traditional residential investment.
1: Right. So I suppose in terms of where we came to terminology around living capital markets and I was
0: I get that the wrong way
1: around I think you might have done I'm hoping I'm not getting off an <laughs> tangent. you were looking at a response that was slightly different to where I'm going to go with it I think candidly what we identified was off the back of the student accommodation sector you had a lot of institutions that I think really started to recognize the ability to acquire residential or I'll use that word in the loosest sense assets at scale and one of the challenges that I used to encounter way back when, when purpose-built student accommodation was a very small sector of the market, was the nervousness about operations and their management. And I think what the purpose-built student accommodation sector have done for institutions demonstrate, that's not such an issue. And actually, again, when you start to compare residential assets about against their commercial brethren, it's quite different. So, historically, obviously, 25-year, full repairing, insuring leases with a great covenant seemed like a really good thing. was a really good thing until tenants started going wrong, and suddenly you were left with an empty shop, which is where we obviously saw a lot of that change come through first, and no income at all. Whereas you lose a tenant in a student accommodation block, in a later living block for rent, it doesn't really matter in the scale of things, and you've got such an underlying Demand for that product, it gets replaced very quickly. Whereas what we're seeing or have seen, particularly in the retail space in a lot of locations, that hasn't been the case. So, this sort of pivot into an appetite for what we call living so that's purpose built student accommodation, that's co living, that's built a rent, multi family, single family, and the later living and healthcare sectors that's what we qualify as sort of living space. It made sense. That the capital could see the similarities. There are some sort of minor differences in terms of length of stay and things like that within that space, and is why we've sort of excluded hospitality out of that sort of living bucket, but some others do include it, or at least include it as a sort of subset of what we're looking at as a bedded investment. Because obviously, the sorts of management that's put in place is very much like hospitality in the top-end Operational, built to rent, it's hospitality like. The difference is really the length of stay. That's the only real key difference. So it just made an awful lot of sense to us to sort of umbrella that. And then, sort of, as you drive down, then in terms of what your investment capital is trying to achieve, you can then identify under that broader bucket what you're trying to achieve in terms of your return and risk profile. And before you ask, does that mean commercials dead? No. I think I've tended to quit back. That means it's working. So that's how we try and differentiate the sort of pools of... Um, as in living versus working? Living investments as opposed to a commercial sector, what I would classify as working.
0: Okay, so and it kind of, to me, it sounds like what you describe as living, <laughs> living capital, I mean, rather than capital living, is needs-based demand, effectively, whereas, for example, a hotel typically is less, more want and less need. Is that kind of aligned with what you're...
1: I think that's, yeah, it's it's, it's an interesting way of thinking about it. Uh, And I think that that would be, again, another fair uh, sort of differentiation in terms of those sort of asset lines, I guess.
0: Okay. So, and so what are the significant trends and emerging dynamics in uh, living capital markets?
1: Well, the most significant trend is clearly this ongoing allocation to living assets, I think for the first time. I'm not sure we've completely fixed, but I think we are now neck and neck with offices as the biggest investment class. Or certainly in the UK, we were last year. So that's a massive change in and just terms. Of from institutional capital, correct? Yeah, correct.
0: Because, because as a size, residential is way bigger than commercial. In total, it's just owned
1: indeed, money. yeah, and I, again, I think that's one of the sort of anomalies. The problem is, is it capital markets ready? That's something that often gets quoted back to me. You can't buy at scale, or as we all know, it's probably as easy to buy a million-pound house as it is to buy a hundred million-pound yeah. development. And if you're trying to allocate, and don't there, actually, just just segueing quickly back to the sort of focus that he wanted to talk about this morning in terms of the emergence of single family housing. Mm. I think that sort of that's why people I think jumped into multi, because they recognized they could deploy capital at scale in a single transaction. Whereas even if we're buying for a house builder, it might be twenty, thirty percent of the scale of what we normally see in a so most of the transactions that we've been involved recently in the single versus multi is probably twenty to thirty as opposed to a hundred, hundred and fifty scale. So there's quite a big variation in terms of that sort of capital allocation and yet the time it would take to deploy probably very similar in terms of that legal commitment
0: yeah and that legal commitment and the strength of title rights is one of the key things that underpins the resilience that you described earlier so it is pretty important so that's very helpful one of the kind of really critical aspects of residential in particular is the balance between supply and demand what do you yeah the primary drivers or challenges that are affecting that equilibrium or balance at the moment. And I wondered if you have any kind of notable statistics or insights on the single family housing space in terms of supply and demand at the moment.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the expectation is whether they are, should we say, nailed down targets or just aspirations in terms of producing something like 300,000 units per annum, Oh, yeah. uh, being set by government, which is nowhere near it. And I think one of the predictions that we made at the start of the year in the research team is that we'll probably see the lowest level of supply during 24 than we've ever seen. And I think fundamentally that is a big, big problem. And there are a number of reasons for that. I mean, planning is clearly one of them in terms of the process. And I think clearly that's going to be very relevant in terms of a lot of the politicking we're going to see over the forthcoming months as we move into a general election. So I think that's a major barrier. I think certainly when you're looking at sort of city centre, high rise, multifamily developments from a viability perspective, even with the rent, the nervousness around fire safety, around contractor default, around uh, providing a relative risk return to the developer, they're really difficult to make work regardless of where you are. So, there are a whole sequence of challenges that I think, particularly in an urban environment, make the delivery of high rise multifamily really difficult at the moment. And then you take the challenges around single family house into a sort of suburban context. And that's not easy either. I mean, the house builders are your critical supply in terms of new supply coming to the market. And certainly done a number of cycles, and we've certainly seen the likes of History and the transaction that they've recently undertaken with Blackstone, I think is probably the perfect example of that, of them pivoting their business plan into dealing with large-scale investors into the sector. Can you provide some colour on that? Well, it's a mix. This is through their LEAF and SAGE platforms. We weren't directly involved with the transaction, but from what I understand... Uh, explain
0: it in super basic terms for anyone who might. Super
1: basic terms. House Builder does a bulk deal with Blackstone through their platform, Leaf and Sage. Sage looking after the shared ownership, Leaf doing market for rent. Approximately 50-50 in terms of split the assets, £819 million pounds worth. So a big, I think that was a massive tick for the sector in terms of demonstrating the confidence that probably one of the best respected private Im- equity investors in the world have into the single-family housing space. So that's how I read that too.
0: Great. That is exactly the kind of answer I was hoping for. <laughs> 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 okay, so any other hot tips for the single-family housing sort of sector or segment or people who are interested in this space, things that they should be aware of?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I think... The granularity of it, I think, is a really important thing. I, it gives you flex, it gives you optionality. So let's give some private equity uh, terminology. It gives you optionality around how you manage a resource. I mean, one of the things that you'll see from a, a multifamily perspective, if you sell one or two units within a massive block, then you negatively impact your investment value in the way these things are appraised. If you sell one or two, individual houses on the edge of a housing estate, that's not really going to affect your underlying investment value. So that gives you the option to crystallize capital if you have a situation around redemptions. And it gives you much more flexibility in terms of how you can manage your estates at certain points as well, where you may not have that from a multifamily perspective to the same degree. I think some of the other positives that I've heard cited within the single family housing space are also around the operational costs, you tend to be running a less amenitized product within single family housing. And I think there'd be I know this is a subject very dear to your heart, Anna, but that how tech actually might enable you to provide a better level of I suppose engagement with your occupy group, your customer set, in a single family housing perspective, which we've not really seen in the UK. I think it's interesting to some work with some guys based in the States within the single-family housing space as well, is they were relatively late to the opportunity to build at scale within the single-family housing markets as well in the States, which is where we often go to for our sort of precedence. So I think there's some really interesting conversations ongoing as to how I think that market's going to evolve. More and more capital looking at it. I think that the barriers remain the same that actually if you're going to develop a strategy within that space, how can you get scaled quickly? And I still think that remains a challenge for most investors in the space. I think it's interesting with people like LNG who obviously set out on a course where they were looking at multi, pivoting into single family, Long Harbor, again, one of the principles, Moda with their Casa by Moda. Moda offering, how many have shifted into looking at single family as part of their menu of offers to their institutional capital. So I have no doubt that we'll continue to see the depth of market and investors within the space grow over the forthcoming years.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. And so valuation, and you kind of touched on some of the components in it at various points through this conversation, but I guess just to kind of just to dig into that topic, valuation <laughs> in the background. Valuation is clearly critical for investors, and there are some really interesting influences in twenty twenty four, like the impact of single core on a building valuation um, yeah. in relation to fire safety and, and changes in regulation. And another might relate to the kind of changing popularity of specific ESG certifications or scores that a building might have had, and then that goes up or down in popularity. I wondered if you can outline some of the shifts in valuation and how investors are adapting to these changes.
1: Well, I have to put my hands up and say I'm no longer a, a registered valuer. But I suppose from the outside, looking in from a valuation perspective, the thing about dual staircases and that changing legislation, there are undoubtedly some investors that frankly, do not feel comfortable buying anything that doesn't have a dual staircase going Mm -hmm. forward. There are other investors that are entirely comfortable with it. So I feel a lot of empathy with my valuer colleagues in terms of how they approach that quandary.
0: Let's just, let's uh, just talk about that so that everyone's on the same page as well. So essentially, buildings were... Well, you might be able to explain it better than I can, but the previous standard has changed. And subsequently, there's lots of buildings that have been built to the old standard with one core. And now they
1: need to. So, completely compliant with the building regs of their time, they've moved to uh, over a certain height, you have to provide dual staircase exits. And that's created a lot of challenges. And obviously, the the whole issue around fire safety, quite rightly, is very much front and centre when you've got institutional capital looking at. Again, one of the big challenges of getting institutions interested in the living space was reputational risk. I mean, for me, that's what makes it exciting and personal and engaging. Because it's people's homes. That's what it is. So that, if you're simply looking to allocate capital, that is sometimes a challenge that people get nervous about. And therefore, all the challenges about health and safety are paramount when you're talking to asset allocators and how that would fit within their, within their, their thinking. So just going back in terms of what that actually means to value, I think at the moment because the market is absolutely dominated by single staircases. For me, it's probably more an issue around depth of market and investors who are prepared to pay. And it's a case of how you operate those buildings. And there are great operational businesses out there at the moment. So I think a lot of those concerns are probably a, a reflection of the importance that people see in it. But it's also just being... I'm going to say over-cautious, it's absolutely right to be aware of it as an issue, but maybe we swung too far the other way. So I think that's probably what's been fairly reflected in the valuation market. I think the thing about sort of invest I mean, the, the big one that floats around a lot is the discount to vacant possession value, which is historically, obviously, the way that residential investments have been valued. More commonly, most commonly now, it's very much an assessment of its net operating income in much the same way as our commercial colleagues would appraise, a commercial asset makes absolute sense. I think it's probably even more relevant to single-family housing. Some of the conversations you have about trying to apply premiums to single-family when they're not stabilised and and unproven, and why would you pay more than someone on the high street for the same unit, I don't quite get that. So I think all of that is in the pot, is a moving feast. We've certainly seen valuations undertaken at premiums in excess of aggregate vacant possession value for multifamily. I don't think I've yet seen that done in single, but I've certainly seen a very close correlation to it. Just
0: on that, sorry, one more question, because since you mentioned the operating company, I suppose, where you've got, for example, a big block of multifamily, one reason why someone might pay more than the vacant possession value is that they want to access scale. And because scale is attractive in one go, they're willing to pay a bit more. Another component, as I understand it, is, you know, the value that the operating company brings. Can you just talk a bit about that and how that, because that seems to be a bit different from
1: like an office, for example. I think in terms of, I suppose, that fully integrated model is about sort of balancing or ensuring with the greatest respect to some third-party managers. I think the biggest issue with the appointment of third-party managers is a concern from the investor that their asset, when they're competing with another managed by the same entity, who gets priority. If you're operating your own asset through your own integrated operational platform, there is no argument. And even if you've got assets in the same city, you'll allocate according to your business plan or your strategy. So I think that tension goes away quite quickly as an owner-operator as opposed to appointing a third party. And it it is a control thing as much as anything, I think, in terms of that full integration. Does that answer a question you're trying to?
0: I think so, because I, well, correct. please correct me if I'm wrong, as I think this is super interesting and important. I think what you're saying is, you know, there's value add in terms of being able to control the management of a building in residential, and that is why people might pay a little bit more for a company that they could control.
1: Uh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I think, I mean, I mean you talk about some of the leading protagonists within the space, the sort of Instagram culture, the sense of community, probably is a better way of putting it, that they're trying to create, that mm. sort of brand identity that they're attaching to their assets is what sets their building aside from the one next door. And building that... I mean, we okay, let's go back to the hospitality, sort of, we all know that there are different subsets within the hospitality space. So you can go absolute prime or you can just get effectively a bed bed for the night. So where do you want to be? And I think that's what we will, as our markets, as you see in the States, you'll see different grades of property. It may become as a result of timing and different trends and fashions. But my expectation is that you will start to see a greater spread of those different grades of multifamily products, of single family products. And they all have a place. But I think the big challenge when it comes to viability is that you tend to have to deliver the higher levels of amenities. I mean, one of the big challenges, one of the sort of big areas that I get asked about a lot is around how do you deliver more affordable residential accommodation at scale? And the challenge is it's really unviable. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. it's not that people don't want to invest in it or there's not an even bigger occupier group that wants to rent in those sorts of buildings. It's just you can't deliver it. Unless something breaks the viability gap which is highly unlikely then it's going to be the upper end that you're going to see more supply i think it's more a case of where you start to professionalize more of the existing kits and i think (laughs) recognizing the affordability challenges that we all have yeah so i think that will be where the market goes building that scale i mean, going back to the valuation point i mean i think you can certainly see a day where A much greater appreciation of the income streams that flow through from these assets probably negates that differential. And actually, if you're the way that you can move the numbers around in terms of what sits in the operational business relative to the real estate element, I think will help to moderate that differential.
0: Okay. So, given the kind of growing emphasis on sustainability and, and responsible investing, how do you envisage the landscape of responsible? residential investment evolving and are there any kind of specific criteria or practices that you think will become more prominent in shaping the future of responsible investment in residential?
1: I think it's front and centre now it's certainly a conversation I have much more regularly with investors about social impact is where residential really flows through I think um, the legislation around EPC grading obviously being dropped by current government, I thought was interesting. And I say interesting on a number of levels insofar as I think the reality of actually being able to hit those targets and translate what is a housing stock that is much older and less energy efficient was probably, in all realism, unachievable within the timeframe that was set. So that can, to me, feels like it's been kicked down the road. But for me, there's a real recognition and actually even chatting system to the local estate agents in a region recently, you're actually seeing investors, buy-to-let investors, mom-and-pop landlords, actually already leaning in and recognising that they need to upgrade the quality of their property, even though they might not need to within 25, 28, 30, whatever the time frame was going to ultimately end up. I think that's coming. And I think we're seeing early signs of people already bringing that forward, certainly the institutional community that I talk to very, very focused on highly efficient buildings. I know you're good friends with some of the team at Octopus and what they're doing with zero bills, so I think is brilliant. And we'll we'll see more of that roll out that affects the affordability that has a massive impact, I think, on people's wellbeing as well in terms of so I think all of that is really intertwined. I think some of the changes coming in terms of the Rental Reform Act and security tenure, I think again, really plays into where the institutions are coming from and offers real benefit. I mean, certainly from a personal perspective, when I've looked when I've rented in the past, it is one of those things that hangs in the back of your mind. I could be out of here at any moment. Yeah. Whereas actually, when you're looking for the long-term income, again, the sort of perception that the landlord's there to try and make a quick buck. Actually, the vast majority of the institutional investment capital I'm looking for, that's the last thing they're considering. They want that continuity of income. They want that happy tenant. They want to do good with the capital that they're deploying. Residential, in that sense, has to be, in my opinion, has to be the best place to put that capital to work. And particularly when I don't think there's any disagreement that we have such a significant supply-demand imbalance.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, you mentioning what you would do brings us nicely to the final question I was going to ask you. So if you had 100 million of your own money to invest in 2024, What would you invest in and why?
1: Well, it may surprise you to learn. I'd probably invest it in residential. (laughs) I suppose, what would I do? Try and balance that out. And I think sort of of parking student and later living, which obviously have to fly the flag for. I think co-living is a really interesting urban solution. So I'd also like to make a little bit more on the 100 million initial investment. I think that to me feels slightly underpriced. So, And I think it has a really interesting point to play in the market. I think more of that will help some of the challenges that we have in the housing market. So it's not the answer, but it is one of the answers, I think. So I would put a little bit of my capital to work within that space. And it's funny, when I dust off the grey matter and when I first started working within the residential space, which is nearly three decades ago, and the really early... Interested investors, so people like ING and Schroders, setting up a residential property unit trust. Their targets were sort of 30 to 50 apartments, and I think that a lot of the work that you've seen people like Sigma do in low-rise resi, in alongside their single-family housing acquisitions. For me, I think that feels like the right strategy. That that would be where I I'd be playing. Amazing.
0: All right. All if listeners want to find out more about you or follow you or JLL or just get in touch, what's the best way for them to do that?
1: I guess the website. is probably a good starter for 10. Uh, email me direct on simonscott at jll.com or I'm on the uh, synonymous LinkedIn uh, platform as well. So any of those formats.
0: Amazing. Well, thank you so much for joining. And
1: It's been great to talk to you as always. Thank you.
0: Bye. Thanks for listening to The Return. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review as this really helps other people to find the podcast.